Welcome to the Data Rockstars Coffee Pod with me, Kelly Peters. And me, Regina Lally. We're back together this week chatting about uh, what's happening in the world of data and data protection. So what do you have to talk to us about today, Regina? Well, following last week's podcast, we had a few questions come into our coffee at dbxuk.com email address. So that was super exciting. And each of us have got a couple of questions to answer. So I thought it'd probably be good to start off with that. And then we can move on to the things that we spotted of interest. So there was a couple for you, Kelly, about the Belgian law firm and the details on that. One of them was... Why was the conflict of interest in that law firm so problematic? So the conflict arises when an individual is both the DPO and in this instance, the head of uh, risk and audit. And when you're in the role of risk and audit, if in your department, maybe there's a breach, for example. So think about Morrison's and it was an auditor that was the cause of that breach. As the head of risk uh, and audit, you will be heavily involved in that investigation. The challenge and conflict arises is you can not then be independent as a DPO when looking at that breach and the impact on the business. So there's conflict between your role of risk and audit and the role of the DPO, even if it's in that role less likely to happen often, it is still a potential conflict. Okay, no, that seems um, really clear. And then the other question that came in around the DPO was, do small companies need the DPO as well? This is a, a really good question. And I think people have historically felt that you appoint a DPO based on the size of your business. And actually, that's not the case. You determine whether or not you need a data protection officer based on the type of data that you're processing. So if you think about um, health records, they are sensitive information. So you're likely to have to appoint a DPO. If you are a public authority, and you are a council, for example, then yes, and whether or not you are monitoring um, activity, uh, so looking for fortunate activity, like a bank. And I think a good example is you could be an app developer of for two people and yet your app could be competing against the likes of Strava or Garmin and you're wanting to systematically monitor behavior of a sport across the country. Now in that instance I would argue that you would require a DPO even though you are a two-person small business. It is the type of data that you're processing that determines the requirement for a data protection officer. Yeah, that's really clear and actually quite handy because I'll be talking about uh, Garmin and Strava in a moment. And I know you had a question as well, didn't you? There was uh, one about the app. Yep. So it's, uh, can you talk more about how exactly the centralised data system used by the NHS is more dangerous than systems employed by Apple and Google? Yeah, essentially the difference between the system that this is around the contact tracing app. And so the way that Apple and Google are approaching this is what is called a decentralized system, which means that through the individual's device, i.e. their mobile phone, that will be collecting data on the individual and any individuals that they come into contact with. So that's the same as how the NHS app will work. The difference is when it comes to the data matching. So in a decentralized model, which is what Apple and Google are using, the actual matching of, I've said I've got coronavirus, so now I need to find out who the other devices that have been in contact with me, who they are and how, and then make that contact to let them know that they've potentially been affected. So that matching happens on the phone through the system then it's automatically dispersed to the other phones there's no centrally held database of that information so apple and google themselves can't go in and start matching that data it's done within their actual operating systems and within the actual phones themselves so it's all kept on each individual's phone so 
it's very limited in its potential. Okay. Whereas uh, the NHS app is looking at a centralised model whereby once somebody says, I've got coronavirus symptoms, that data of that phone, the ID, plus the ID of any other phones is sent up to a central database held by NHS Digital, the NHS, whoever's responsible for it. And that matching occurs at a central place for a push out of notifications from the centralised database rather than from the individual's device. So in that case, then there's more potential for scope creep and the fact you've got a centralised database of information about individuals, who they've been in contact with, and the fact that scope creep can occur when that is the case. It's quite a quick answer for probably something that's a little bit complicated, but um, probably time to move on now. But hopefully that's cleared up those questions and it's really good to get them coming through from, from listeners. So please do keep them coming in. We're happy to answer any of those questions that you have. And I think that question quite nicely links into what you want to talk about. If, we're, if the NHS app is about centralised data, then you could talk about big data. And I know this is something that you wanted to touch base on today. Yep. So I think both of the stories that we're looking at this week sort of touches on that big data concept. So anyone that knows me or probably has seen anything on social media knows that um, I enjoy running. I've run for years and more recently getting into uh, cycling. So I use trackers for years, starting off with Nike Plus back in 2008 and gradually moved on to Strava and recently got a Garmin watch. So I've been using Garmin and I got a blog through from them to my email, which was really interesting. It's looking at the nature of how people's exercise habits have changed across Europe based on the coronavirus and lockdown situations in each country. And it's fascinating just from the fact of you can really see a difference in the ways in which people are exercising based on what's happening in each country due to coronavirus and how strict the lockdown measures are. So what they've done They get information, huge amounts of information from all the individuals who are out there running, cycling, swimming, golfing. They've got a lot of different options on their watches. And so as individuals, we will voluntarily give that information to Garmin who are collating it all. And often they'll be looking at trends, trying to understand how people are are exercising, how they can support that. And obviously, this is a really interesting case study to see how it's affecting people's habits. And I think there was a kind of a a statement towards the beginning that people are going to be moving less, but they Mm -hmm. kind of thought, well, actually, what if people are, are not moving less? Because, okay, they might be taking less steps or fewer steps, but actually they're doing more exercise of different types and they're doing more of that. So that's what their their original hypothesis was. Cool. And obviously, as data people, we get super excited by insight that can be driven because you can present it in a number of really funky ways, uh, whether it be maps or graphs, and and you can show the difference between before and after. Yeah, and what they've done quite cleverly is they've they've taken a midpoint of the 9th of March, which I think is when Italy went into lockdown. And they've then looked at the five weeks previous to that and the five weeks following that across the top five countries that have been affected by coronavirus. And what they found is really interesting. So where the lockdown has been more strict, like in France, Italy, Spain, they've seen significant increases both in indoor cycling, indoor running. So in Italy, they've had a 309% increase in indoor cycling and 130% increase in indoor running. Wow. So, but you can also then see in a corresponding way that their outdoor activities have massively dropped. So yeah. in a time where the springtime, people are getting outside because it's warmer again, typically you'd see both of those activities rising because they've compared it also back to 2019. And actually what you can see is that in Italy, there's been like a 42% drop in outside running. So okay. you can really see that people are continuing to move, but that they're doing it in a different way. 
And I think then when you look at places like they've looked at Germany, the UK and Sweden, they've done sort of Sweden as a bit of a control because there's been a lot less lockdown restrictions. They've kind of relied on individuals' own responsibility to manage the coronavirus there. And you can see that people are increasing their activity still. They're outdoors more, so they're not necessarily as much indoor running or cycling. But with the running, particularly, it's interesting that people are still running, but they're staying closer to home. So the distances have got shorter. So they're obviously wanting to not put themselves as at much risk in Germany and the UK, where we can still go outside. But it's a little bit more limited to, say, the hour time frame. What was also really interesting was that when they looked at golfing, basically in every those five European countries, it dropped off a cliff as all the golf courses closed. But in Sweden, they've seen a 741% increase in people golfing. Cracky. Because that, that they would normally can do over when they compare it to last year. So I think what they've concluded is, is that people find a way to keep moving and keep doing what they want to do and can be quite innovative in how they do that. Cool. And that insight that they've got comes from all of us as individuals sharing that information. That's definitely not without risk, which I yeah. think... Um, do you remember the Strava story? Indeed, where military personnel were using their Strava because they wanted to know how good they were doing and compare themselves to their fellow teammates and inadvertently posted that, uploaded it to Strava. Strava then used maps and you identified some very secure locations that the organ, I think it was the US, didn't want uh, their bases being identified from a map. Yeah. So that's an example of systematic monitoring and inadvertent um, disclosure links into to what I really wanted to uh, cover today because there's never a dull day in data protection. There was an article this week that said the um, automatic number plate recognition, you know, it captures your kind of your, your number plate when you get into a car park or when you're uh, traveling down the motorway. There was an instance of this in the north of the country where it was accessed by an investigator to see if there are any vulnerabilities and it exposed over a two-week window 8.6 million car journeys wow. um, yeah and that from a stall car kind of hacking perspective you're actually able to determine where people are moving from and it felt that that was quite risky now what was most interesting and also a little bit alarming was there was no password on this uh, really I yeah mean that's basic. It is pretty basic. So it's no surprise it's been reported to the information uh, commissioner and the principle about security is definitely going to be looked at uh, for this. They've apologised. However, it still has exposed the data and potentially put people at physical um, harm as well as the real potential of emotional. So in terms of things like number plates, is there a way people can link that back to individuals or can they get further details about individuals from that kind of information? I think the case has been because there is the reality you could link it to the DVLA you would be able to identify people if you can then track a journey and you know it's a regular journey from home to the office you're then linking a location to that mm -hmm. car registration and then the reality is you you're more likely to identify who that person is if you were then to pick out records that are, are in the public domain so it is, it is a risk to individuals so for me I think the tip I wanted to give people is to just check there audit your systems you know what processes have you got in place where you are processing personal data do you have the basics such as passwords because i think it's something that's pretty key and the other thing i really wanted to touch on which is quite is linked is the impact that poor uh, security can have on systems so there was a law firm in new york that mm -hmm. uh, has some very high profile 
clients such as Madonna and Lady Gaga and Elton John and a large scale hacking group that hacked Travelex earlier this year have taken hold of seven gigabytes of client data. So they've wow. taken it to ransom uh, and they have information that's personal emails, they have contracts and they have threatened to expose this to the external world if they're not paid $21 million. So in- this is your typical ransomware kind of attack of holding yeah. somebody and a business to ransom over their data, which yeah. is increasing in popularity. It is. And I think certainly for the likes of law firms where they are handling high profile cases, whether it be celebrities or whether it be from a a criminal defense or, you know, like, you know, high wealth, high net worth individuals, actually a risk of one of those being exposed is quite significant and the Mm. the impact it can have on an individual. But for me, I wanted to raise the point that they've been taken offline. And as much as they may have a backup, the risk is the data has been exposed and could still be exposed by the hacking group. So I looked up on what the National Cybersecurity Center in this country would say, how do you handle a ransomware um, attack? Mm-hmm. And their stance is, and it's supported by the National Crime Agency, is you simply don't pay the ransom because no. you've got no guarantee that they're going to delete the data. So it's better to not pay the ransom, but then you have the risk of, well, if it's exposed, what's the impact on you as a reputation of your business? So then the practical things I was thinking about is, do you have cyber insurance? You know, how's that insurance going to help you with the forensic investigation as to how this happened about the PR? Because your reputation is going to be massively impacted by this. So do you have cyber insurance to help you with that? And then Think about the vulnerabilities on your systems. Do you do any kind of cybersecurity checks on that? Do you know if there are systems that are not patched uh, properly, that you've got the right software on it, that you've got the right mechanisms to try and prevent and detect these things? So if you haven't, I would certainly suggest that you do the very basics because the basics, as proven by the AMPR example, are very easy to get wrong. Um, That's true. And I think it doesn't matter whether it's a celebrity or Joe Bloggs walking down the street. All of us have that same right to privacy. And obviously, there's going to be more interest in celebrity information. But ultimately, the damage done to an individual can be just as much and just as harmful and what happens to that data if it is compromised. So but wow, that time's gone quickly. Um, and as, <laughs> so um, again, it's been exciting. It's been fun. And it, I think it shows that there's just lots of different, exciting and interesting stories that are happening every week that we can chat about and sure. uncover what's going on in the world of data and data protection. So if you've got any any questions that you'd like us to cover based on what we've been talking about or just anything random that you spot that you'd like us to chat about, please do get in touch with us at coffee at dbxuk.com. We'd love to hear from you. And that's really um, goodbye for us um, now. And we will be back online uh, next week with another exciting episode. Mm -hmm.